Your phone is probably the most intimate piece of technology you own. It spends more time with you than your family or friends or coworkers or maybe even your partner. It's with you on the subway. It's with you in the car. It probably goes with you to the bathroom. And when you sleep, it sleeps next to you, on your nightstand, waiting to wake you up. Your phone is also a snitch. When you let it, your phone gives away your location to apps that need it, like a weather app. And in some cases, when you're done figuring out whether you need to bring an umbrella, apps will keep taking your location data and sending it off. That data has a second life on secondary markets, where marketers and consulting companies lap it up. And now, the federal government has access to this location data, too. And they're using it to enforce the border. I'm Ariel Dimros. This is Reset. Byron Tao, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, you and your colleague Michelle Hackman published a report last week that the federal government is using cell phone location data for immigration enforcement. What kind of data are we talking about? Well, we're talking about data that's usually collected through apps or online display ads that reveal the user's location. So this is a big pool of data that marketing companies and data brokers control and often make available for resale and reuse. So you're, you're talking about advertisements and you're also talking about apps. Let's just say I look at my phone. What kind of apps typically would gather this kind of information and, and how would I encounter these advertisements? All kinds of apps gather this information. Um, for example, when you open a rideshare app, that is collecting your location. Often um, restaurant review apps like Yelp are asking for your location. E-commerce sites are asking for your location. Even games are sometimes asking for your location. Most people don't read the privacy policies or the terms of service of the apps they use. And even if they do, it's not always clear Um, exactly what the app is or is not allowed to do. You know, they'll use vague phrases like, we reserve the right to sell your data for analytics and marketing research. But it doesn't always spell out exactly where that data is going. And even after it leaves one party's hands, um, industry insiders say that there's a chain of custody of data, that it starts with one company and then it's passed to another and then is sold to another and then is licensed to another. And so it's very difficult to understand exactly how this industry works and where your data is going. So how is this data usually used by marketing companies? Generally speaking, most of these marketing companies want to serve you display ads or they want to do real-world sort of analytics on consumer behavior. So um, they could serve you an ad for a nearby restaurant in an app or on a website that you're browsing. Or alternatively, they could collect the location data from something like a weather app and use it to study essentially what people are doing. So how much foot traffic does a store have? Mm. How many people attended a concert? There's all sorts of algorithmic um, sort of experiments you can run on large-scale data when you're collecting that much location data from that many people. And can you tell, you know, the location of a specific individual given this this data? Is it anonymized or, or can you actually know where a, a given individual has gone? Yes and no. So in this data set, to the marketers, you're basically just an alphanumeric string of letters and numbers. But your real-world behavior 
gives away a lot about you. So, for example, you're probably the only person in the world that transits between your home and your work every day. That essential pattern of going between your home and your workplace, two data points that are pretty easy to get on most people, will give away who the owner of the phone is in many cases. And we saw that in a big New York Times expose who got access to some of this data and managed to, from these anonymous uh, alphanumeric strings, uh, figure out who specific individuals were in a large data set. lay out a couple of real-life examples that I want to talk about, including a 46-year-old math teacher named Lisa. It shows she leaves her house, or leaves a house, I should say, in upstate New York at 7 a.m. every day, travels to a middle school 14 miles away, It shows she went to a Weight Watchers meeting, to her dermatologist's office, hiking with her dog, over to her ex-boyfriend's house where she stayed. This is a very intimate and detailed look at who a person is. Uh, In the case of Lisa, right, her location was recorded 8,600 times. There are some real national security implications about this. I mean, you saw from this one data set phones pinging all over the White House, phones pinging all over the Pentagon. They were even able to do that with President Trump's uh, security, right? They were able to follow a specific security agent as that agent was uh, moving around with President Trump. That person was a uh, uh, believed to be a Secret Service agent. And, you know, we were able to follow that person to their home. We were able from there to understand who that person's spouse was, uh, you know, see trips to a school, per se, uh, which was, you know, um, supposedly dropping off their child. The things that you know, no normal person should be able to see, especially, uh, you know, a journalist uh, 3,000 miles away. And so this is data that, while technically you're just a string of letters and numbers to these marketing companies, it does reveal a lot about you. And anyone with a nefarious purpose or who wanted to de-anonymize this data would not have that much trouble doing it. So you wrote that this is the first time anyone's confirmed that the federal government has used this kind of data for law enforcement. So how did the government get access to this stuff? Just like everyone else in this market, they essentially purchased access. Um, There's a company called Ventel, um, a very small company based in Virginia outside of Washington, D.C., that is selling licenses to the federal government to access this huge trove of location data that contains the movement records of millions of cell phones in America. And, you know, industry insiders say it's not unusual for companies to have 75 or 100 million mobile devices in their data set, and they often make that data available for resale or purchase or rent. Um, In this case, the federal government is renting it. Do we know how much it cost? It's a little hard to tell from the contracts, but it looks like a single user license for this uh, service, this Ventel service, accessing the portal costs about $20,000. That's pretty cheap. But again, this market is very opaque. We don't know a lot about what it costs to buy large troughs of data. And this is a big market. Isn't phone location data the kind of thing that you would need a warrant for? So in general... Um, The Supreme Court has said if you want to go to a cell phone provider like Verizon or AT&T and get phone records from specific individuals or from a specific place, that's cell tower records, you do need a warrant. But this data set that I'm talking about is a little bit different. It's marketing data. It's available on the open market. Probably you could get the raw data from one of these data brokers um, and uh, in general do what the New York Times did, which was de-anonymize it or use it for whatever purpose that you see fit. And just to be clear, the data that the government got 
it's not just for folks who aren't American citizens. It's for citizens as well, right? That's right. It's basically anyone using a cell phone in America who has enabled location tracking on one or more apps. So the case that you reported on had to do specifically with immigration. And I'm wondering, how are border agents using this data set? Well, it's not exactly clear. The government was very tight-lipped about what they're doing with it. Um, They did acknowledge buying this kind of data, but by and large, they refused to talk about exactly what they're doing with it. So we have some indications in public records and from sources. Okay. For one, they're looking for illegal border crossings. So they're looking for um, cell phones appearing on the U.S. side of the border in places where there aren't uh, official border crossings. Mm-hmm. And that could indicate an illegal crossing by a group of migrants or drug smugglers or human traffickers. And that could trigger a follow-up. So somebody crosses the border with their phone on them and they might be able to track that. That's right. They might. Or they might just be looking for patterns. So where are people crossing and do they need to divert more resources to that area? It's not entirely clear. Um, The other thing they're doing is looking for border tunnels that's very similar to crossings, but in this case, it's sort of a surreptitious tunnel. And we found uh, in one case, uh, two sources described to us uh, a case down in St. Louis, Arizona, where uh, Someone had constructed a border tunnel between a restaurant on the U.S. side of the border and the Mexican side and was allegedly using it for drug smuggling. And uh, that Ventel data was used to tip off investigators to look more into this case. Do we know how many people have been arrested uh, because of this data? Do we know what impact this is actually having? We don't. Um, you know, it's, and it's also not even clear to me whether this is a pilot program or this is something that's being used uh, in a full-fledged, full-throated way. And we've talked to sources that have described some of these operations. But in general, we do not know the scope of what exactly the government is doing and, and why. And I think, um, you know, it, it will be incumbent upon voters and lawmakers and regulators to ask more questions ab- about these kind of programs. And uh, it'll be up to Congress and the American people to decide um, whether this is in line with American values. We talk a lot on this show about the lack of technology-focused privacy protections on the federal level. Do you think that those kinds of laws, legislation at at the national level, would that have prevented this? It certainly would prevent some of this. Um, Essentially, the European data protection law, GDPR, has limited what marketing companies can do with some of this data in Europe. But, you know, there have been experiments that show that marketers are still leaching data into marketing ecosystems without disclosing to consumers. And a lot of the critics of that law in Europe say there's no real enforcement yet. And so, um, you know, the impact of the law is uncertain. Um, And then there's another Uh, thing that has just changed in this industry, which is that Apple has sort of stepped up its privacy protections on the iPhone. And in the latest update of uh, its iOS operating system, it's put a reminder into the operating system of how often apps track you. So now there's a pop-up that says, you know, Candy Crush or whatever has logged your location 137 times in the last seven days. Do you wish to continue? An app that really doesn't need your location. Exactly. And so a lot of consumers are taking more more control of their privacy, realizing how often some of these apps that really don't need to know where they are all the time are recording their location. And so that has had an impact uh, to some degree on this marketing ecosystem and the availability of some of this data. 
So things are changing, and I think consumers are becoming more aware of their options to opt out of a lot of this. Um, but in general, uh, many industry insiders say it's not going to stop unless there is some sort of national debate or national reckoning about exactly what the laws are and the rules are around marketing data. Byron Tao is a reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Cell phone location data isn't the only technology the government is using to surveil the border. That's after the break. This is Reset. If you purchase supplies for a small to mid-sized business, Zorro.com, that's Z-O-R-O.com, is your go-to resource. At Zorro, you'll find all the things that keep a business running, no matter what kind of business you're in. Zorro offers tools, safety equipment, cleaning and maintenance supplies, office and shipping, automotive, industrial equipment, and more including the specialty items you can't find anywhere else. Whether you're shopping for an office, factory, contracting business, or machine shop, you can get exactly what you need. And when you shop at Zorro, you'll find brands you already know and trust, like Prestone, Milwaukee Tool, Schneider Electric, and Proto, all at competitive prices. Want fast, free shipping? It's yours when you spend $50 or more. Visit zoro.com slash reset and sign up for Zmail to get 15% off your first order. That's zoro.com slash reset and sign up for Zmail for 15% off. Zoro.com, all you need to make your business go. If you own a car, you get car insurance. If you own a home, you get home insurance. But what you might not know is that if you rent an apartment, you might want to get renter's insurance from a place like State Farm. State Farm Renter's Insurance helps protect the stuff that landlords don't. Like your furniture that gets drenched by a broken pipe. Or when a burglar makes off with your new laptop. When you add it all up, your stuff's probably worth more than you think. But if you do end up getting burglarized, or if there's a fire, or if there's water damage to your belongings, landlords won't cover your loss. So for pennies a day, you can make sure your stuff's protected with State Farm Renters Insurance. And with more than 19,000 agents across the U.S., it's easy to find one close by. Because when it comes to renters insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. That's statefarm.com. Shireen Ghaffari, reporter for Vox's Recode. These days, when we talk about the southern border, we usually talk about a super basic piece of tech. We talk about a wall. But from what I understand, there's a lot more high-tech stuff going on there, right? Absolutely. So what we're seeing is increasingly sophisticated technology being used at the U.S.-Mexico southern border. And we're seeing the Trump administration ask for more and more money to institute these kinds of new tools. Okay, so what does that actually look like? So it's this vast network of different kind of gadgets and tools, surveillance drones, and those range from these big 36-foot-long, 5,000-pound Predator B drones that have been around for years, as well as these newer, more nimble, smaller drones built by companies like Anduril, which is a startup, that are saying they can do sort of the same job for much less using high-definition cameras. Then we have things like... uh, 
networks of surveillance towers. So these are, you know, 33-foot-long um, kind of poles that stick out and have panels on them, sometimes solar panels. And uh, they, they have really sophisticated radars attached to them, more so than like a drone with a camera on it would have. So they have night vision, radar, so they can detect uh, people coming in whatever time of day. And then we have sensors. And, you know, the kinds of sensors that are used at the border are very sophisticated. For example, there's fiber optic sensors that are built on these very thin cables built underneath the ground that can pick up on sounds uh, that are very, very soft, uh, like a whisper. You're also seeing data surveillance from people's cell phone activity. And that's uh, what's actually recently been reported on in more depth and raises a lot of questions about people's data privacy. And so people talk about this sort of a, as a, a smart wall, right? Is that a, a good way to talk about this? That's very much how proponents of increasing technology at the wall like to talk about it because they think of it as being a more effective uh, and a more sophisticated way than to uh, counter immigration uh, than having a physical barrier at the U.S. southern border. Is this new to the Trump administration or was, has this been going on for a long time? No, it's not entirely new at all. Um, there was a big effort back in the 2000s uh, called SBINet to build out technology at the border wall. It actually ran into issues around funding, overspending, um, missing some targets. And so that was scaled back. But we're seeing a now kind of a re-emphasis on building out this smart border wall during a time when the actual physical wall is so divisive. This smart wall is now thought of a way that we could reach some kind of bipartisan agreement around increased uh, spending at the border. OK, so where is this all coming from? Where's the sort of what's the trigger for this whole smart wall stuff and at least the most recent stuff? I mean, I think, again, it's this administration's emphasis on curbing uh, illegal immigration at the border. Um, but the reality of erecting a huge physical wall, um, maybe not coming to fruition as as soon as it would like. Uh, so we're seeing this idea that, you know, using drones that spy on people, that this way we can uh, truly curb the kind of illegal immigration the administration does not want to see. Okay, and so this is seen as being more effective and also maybe a way to do the kind of enforcement that the administration wants to do without actually erecting a physical wall. Right, or as a supplement to it, um, especially in the areas where building a physical wall would be very hard because it's mountainous or because there's a big body of water. Um, the smart wall is seen as, as either a supplement or an alternative. And are Democrats more open to this? Um, when I initially reported on this, uh, we saw several Democratic members of Congress, including leaders like House Speaker Pelosi, be supportive of these technologies at the border. The positive, uh, shall we say, almost technological uh, wall that can be built is what we should be doing. Uh, however, uh, now that we're seeing uh, increasing questions being raised about the data privacy of people at the border and people in the U.S. more broadly, I think some of these tools are going to come under more fire and scrutiny. So I'm really glad you mentioned that because in the first part of this episode, we talked about sort of this phone location data that was reported on by The Wall Street Journal. Is there sort of a similar privacy issue with this broader technological effort at the border? 
Yes, absolutely. We're seeing civil liberties organizations like the ACLU raise a red flag that really any kind of surveillance technology being used at the border, that that could be used not only to monitor, let's say, illegal drug trafficking at the border, but also to monitor asylum seekers who are trying to find refuge in the states, or that it could be used to surveil everyday Americans who are actually legally residing in the United States, but happen to live uh, in what's called a border zone, which is a hundred mile uh, radius around the uh, U.S. borders of other countries. And we're not only talking about sort of the southern border, right? Like anybody who lives by a port, like that is also the border and there's increased surveillance there too. Absolutely. So 200 million Americans, by the ACLU's estimate, or U.S. residents rather, live within a border zone. So that's two-thirds of the U.S. population. That's a lot of people. And that includes people who live in states you wouldn't really think of as being border areas, such as Maine. Right, because Canada. Because <laughs> of Canada. <laughs> in talking about this, a question has popped up for me. I'm wondering, why is the border a place where this tech gets tried out? I think because there's less scrutiny of it, right? Both uh, legally and in the border zone, some of the constitutional uh, rights that people have against unwarranted seizures and searches, some of those are waived. Uh, within the border zone and also just beyond the legal loosening of restrictions, just, you know, people question less the kinds of surveillance that's happening when when someone is crossing the border. There's an idea that, you know, we have to protect, you know, our borders and we have to watch the people coming into this country. And therefore, uh, it would be much, much, much more controversial if the U.S. was openly doing this stuff, uh, you know, smack dab in the middle of the country where there wasn't a question about borders or immigration. We've spent a lot of time in this episode talking in general about how this affects Americans, right? That this is infringing on the privacy of Americans. But the intended target of these technologies are people trying to cross the border who are not American. What impact does this have on them? Well, studies have shown that when you start to restrict the paths of people crossing the border and when you institute uh, more of these types of technologies and other methods to stop them from crossing, it can make it harder and more treacherous. And so people can start to take increasingly difficult and dangerous paths to cross the border, and that can result in higher deaths. Okay, so people know that they're being surveilled, and because of that, they're trying to avoid checkpoints, they're trying to avoid sort of typical border crossing areas, and so they're putting themselves increasingly at risk. Exactly. And remember that a lot of, especially the U.S. southern border, you know, there's deserts, there's mountains, there's bodies of water. So uh, there's all kinds of really physically dangerous paths that people can take to avoid being surveilled. I'm going to guess that some people are speaking out about this, right? So what are they saying? Well, critics are saying that, A, we need to know a lot more about the type of uh, new tools being used, especially those around cell phone data and location tracking. And they're also saying that, you know, fundamentally, immigration is not a technology problem, that if if there's a problem with immigration, we should address that through our immigration policies, and that you're never sort of going to stop the tide of people coming in uh, who are seeking a better life in the U.S. And immigration advocates, of course, would say we should have, you know, more open policies to let these people come in legally and seek asylum um, in a less dangerous fashion. Shireen Ghaffari is a reporter for Recode. This is Reset, and I'm Ariel Dumross. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at ADRS. 
You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We publish episodes three times a week, on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us. We'll be back on Sunday. Later, nerds. <laughs>